Good morning, Forest Park. Great to see you guys today. Kicking off a brand new series, Stories Jesus Told. You know, for most of my life, I've been a rule follower. I mean, yes, as a teenager, I tested boundaries. You know, as a young adult, young pastor, I pushed limits. I challenged the status quo, you know, all the normal stuff you do when you're a teenager and young adult. But the testing, pushing, and challenging still fits snugly within the boundaries of church, religion, God. I never stepped far over the line. For most of my life, I lived within the box of Christianity. When I graduated high school, I enrolled in seminary. I've been married to Lana for 32 years. I served as a pastor for 27 years. I never got drunk. I never battled addictions, you know, yada, yada, yada. I'm overall conservative, traditional, white, American, male, Christian, you know, pretty, pretty boring life, I guess, when you look at it from that angle. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, there's no bone in my body wishes I would have, you know, gotten drunk, addicted, divorced, had an affair, did drugs, whatever you want to throw into that spicy vat. I'm thankful I was raised within a framework elevating marriage and sobriety and faithfulness and church attendance and tithing and all the things that go along that list of what, you know, Christians do. I'd tweak a few things. You've heard me preach many times. There's lots of things about my childhood I certainly would, would, would dial differently and you know, make some adjustments, but I'm still happy with the values and standards instilled within me at a young age. But here's what I've learned about people who grew up like me. And there are some of you in this room this morning, some of you watching online, you grew up the way I did overall, You're kind of within the box of religion. There were certain things you did, certain things you didn't do. And, and overall, you, you kept in line, if you will. Here's what I've learned over my lifespan. For, for those of us who grew up that way, underneath the years of faithfulness, loyalty, Bible study, service, giving, teaching, etc., a belief subtly grew. And it was a belief I call payday someday. It's not something we talk about. It's not something we think about much, but still we believe our hard work, our sacrifice, our giving, our willingness to take the back seat on and on eventually should bring a reward greater and more fulfilling than anything we could have experienced if we would have gone, quote unquote, the other way. So we hold out, we wait, we anticipate because Payday is coming someday. Then, over time, if you're like me, you'd notice something. You notice a lot of people who live far from God, never really went to church, people who cheated, lied, you know, um, were unfaithful, or just good people who left God out of their plans. You watch them and you realize that many of those people actually have a lot in life. They prosper. They have kids, they have great jobs. Rather than giving their money to God uh, through their local churches, they kept it, they invested it, they did with their money what they wanted to, and then you look at their life and you think, wow, they seem to have a lot of things I don't have. Uh, what gives here? I've been following God, I've been sowing into God's kingdom, I've been doing all the things I'm supposed to do, and yet I'm struggling and, and they seem to be doing okay. I mean, what happened to if I'm faithful, he'll be faithful to me. Where is it that he will give me abundantly above all that I could ever ask, think, or imagine? 
I mean, I know that's spiritual in nature, but what about some of the physical blessings? I mean, what about a better house? What about a better job? What about healing? What about kids? What about a raise? I mean, I don't want to take away the good things from those who seem far away from God, and yet they seem to have more than I do. It's not that I want to take away from them. I just want to know, where's mine? I mean, there's got to be enough to go around, right? I mean, by now, we should expect to have at least a life that is so distinctly different and so blessed by God that people could look at us and go, no, there's a person who follows God because God's blessed her so much. Or there's a guy that's been faithful to God with his giving because God has blessed him so much. Well, Scott, I mean, you ought to just be happy you followed God. I mean, you made the right decision. Well, I agree. Again, I, please don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to turn back. I, I don't want to change my mind. I'm not discounting the life I have, but I should have a reward or a blessing or some good stuff coming my way, right? I mean, if I've sown good seed for years and I should reap a good harvest. Are anybody following me? Okay. All right. Maybe I should have entitled this message Confessions of an Old Faithful and Cranky Christian, right? Maybe, maybe that's what I should have entitled. What, what a great title. It's a good title for a book, you know? And don't, don't some of you look at me like you've never wondered these things. You have. I know you have. I'm a pastor, I counsel people, I meet with people over coffee, I talk with people about the, the you know, the kind of the two pieces of the puzzle that do not seem to work together, you're, you're faithful, you do all the things you're supposed to do, and yet your marriage still falls apart. You, you give and give and give and give and give, and you still lose your job. You pray and pray and pray, and yet the sickness doesn't go away. And you go, well, what, what's up here, God? What, what's going on? And, and if I could sit down with you, I mean, look you eye to eye and have a hard conversation with you, I'm confident I would uncover several of you who wonder the exact same thing I'm outlining right now. I mean, you might word it differently. You may say it a little different than I do, but you still wonder. I know you do. Some of you question why a certain prayer isn't answered. And you have prayed about that and prayed about that and prayed about that, and you're still facing the same thing. Many of you are curious, after all these years of faithfulness, why blank happened? Why did this happen? I'm going to be honest, you deserve better. That's what you think. And I know it's hard to say it, especially when you're in church, because you're like, oh, you know, saying that, I mean, you know, that's, that's very offensive. That seems uh, sacrilegious almost. And some of you are almost like, well, if I start questioning now, it, it's almost like I've fumbled the ball at the five-yard line. Like I've been running down the field, having all this faith and praying and believing, and then I get right before the touchdown and I drop the ball. So I better not start doubting now because I might win tomorrow. I'm, things might change in the next few weeks. Well, I'm giving you permission today to be honest. I mean, just as honest and as raw as you possibly can. And maybe there's only one person sitting in this room who feels the way I do. Maybe there's just one person sitting at home right now watching this message and you're like, hey, that's me. You know what? If it's just one person, this message is for you. You. If it's just you and me, I'm just going to pour into you today what I've learned, pour into you today what I'm learning. Because today, the story Jesus tells is for you. It's you who needs to listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Now, before we get to this story, this parable today, I need you to know something. I've presented this parable at Forest Park many times. In fact, I've presented it so many times here at Forest Park, I have believed for a long time that I've squeezed about all I could squeeze out of this thing. 
like all the truth juice is gone because I have just walked my way through this and walked my way through this and I've given it to you so many different times and I've read the parable and I've taught the parable and preached the parable. And in fact, when we were thinking about doing a series on parables, I thought, okay, this is the one that I'm not gonna do because I've done it so many times. I'm just gonna hang this up. I'm gonna let somebody else deal with it. Maybe they'll come at it from a different angle. I think I've, I've, I've got everything out of it that I possibly could until recently. So here's a confession. I've approached this parable wrongly for years. I mean, you, you, you've heard me say, maybe this will help explain it. You've heard me say this many times if you've been here at Forest Park. We all wear glasses. Figuratively speaking, we all wear glasses. We all see the world through a particular pair of glasses. Now, those glasses were handed to us by our parents or our grandparents or the churches we grew up in or our political, you know, persuasions or whatever. We all wear these glasses and we see and we interpret everything through these glasses, the world around us. And it also is true when it comes to scripture. When you sit down to read your Bible, you put on a pair of glasses or you never take them off. You see everything through a particular perspective. How we see the Bible says more about us than it actually does the Bible, because we see within the Bible what we want to see, and what we see reveals who we are. In fact, it's not so much that we read the Bible, it's that when we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. Does that make sense? We, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. We bring with us all the time our own perspective. That's how you can get someone with a completely different political bent than you, use scripture to justify their their beliefs, and then somebody else who sees politics completely different uses scripture to justify their beliefs. Some people use scripture to justify racism. Some people use scripture to justify greed. Some people use scripture to justify a whole lot of things. We find in the Bible who we are. So you need to know that today's parable I see differently. I see differently because I, I took off some glasses that I've worn for a long time and I, I put on a different pair and I'm, I'm hopeful that this pair is much closer to reality, much closer to truth than maybe ever before. And I approach this parable differently because, now watch this, this is all setting, this is the canvas on which I'm gonna paint today. I approach this parable from the wrong angle for years and I gave it to you from the wrong angle. For years. And I'm sorry for that. It's not that what I said was wrong. So you're not going to hear me contradict everything I said. It's, it, what I said was true, but it wasn't complete. What I said was true, but it was at a slightly different angle. And you, you know this, that if you're just off one degree, you, if you keep going in long enough, you'll be off a long way at the end. And if you start at the wrong place, you end up at the wrong place. And a, a lot of times when I've preached this parable before, I started at the wrong place. So I ended at the wrong place. You'll see what I mean as we go through this. Okay, hold everything that I said in mind. All of that, just suspended in your mind. This is the second service. So you guys have been awake you know, a lot longer than the first service. You've had coffee, you've had breakfast, you've had all that, so you're in good shape. All right? Your mind is alert. Hold all of that in mind as we jump into Luke 15. Now, if I had to choose, I say this chapter includes the most famous parable Jesus ever gave. It's the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. In fact, many of you could tell the story yourself. You've heard it so many times. I could. 
I don't even need to read the story from scripture. I could tell you the parable by heart. I have read it probably at least a thousand times. I have read entire books just on this parable. I have listened to sermon after sermon after sermon on this parable alone. And about 980 of those 1,000 times, I started at the wrong place. And I ended at the wrong place. It's the story of the prodigal son, which officially begins in verse 11. And when you begin this this chapter, you, you got to read the whole chapter together. That's one of the problems that I did. I sometimes would kind of skip to verse 11 and start in verse 11. You, you can't really start in verse 11 in Luke 15. You've got to go back to verse 1, and you've got to get a running start on everything Jesus is saying here because it's all one overall large, big point Jesus is making. So you got to read the first story in that chapter, which is the lost sheep, and you got to read the second story, which is a lost coin, and then you get into the lost son, the prodigal son. Because the f- point of the first two shorter, lesser-known parables is the same point of the longer, more famous story in the latter part of the chapter. you got to read it all together. Luke 15, watch, watch how Jesus sets this up. This will tell you exactly what he's saying here. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. It's kind of like Forest Park, all the sinners in town, okay? The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Now just stop. Here is where I started wrongly. I misread the reason Jesus told these three back-to-back parables. Now, let me explain, okay, before we get into the meat of this. Here's why I thought for years Jesus told the three parables in Luke 15, which is really one long parable. Here's why I thought he told it. Various sinners and tax collectors gathered around to hear Jesus, and Jesus welcomes these sinners and tax collectors. Well, the Pharisees and legal experts, the teachers of the law, became angry that he allows these dirty outcasts to be a part of his teachings. And Jesus realizes how upset the Pharisees and teachers of the law become. So Jesus, here it is, this is key. So Jesus launches into a series of parables to display the grace and mercy of God to show the Pharisees and teachers of the law how wrong they were for getting upset that he welcomed them. In other words, Jesus is saying, oh, this is what I thought. Oh, you're upset that I'm welcoming sinners and tax collectors? Well, let me tell you a story about just how gracious and loving God really is. And when he gets finished with the prodigal son, the Pharisees and tax collectors were cut to the heart and their mouths were open and they were dumbfounded at God's grace and some walked away angry And then I would say this, and if you've been here a long time, you've heard me say something like this at the end of a parable like this. No wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. He was a radical dispenser of grace. But I've learned that when you begin at the wrong place, you end at the wrong place. And I no longer see the motive of Jesus as putting the Pharisees and teachers of the law in their place. That's not really why he tells these stories. Jesus was not telling these three back-to-back parables, that's really one long parable, to rub the grace of God in the face of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. 
and show them how amazing God's mercy really is. No, 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 no. Here's how I see it now. Various sinners and tax collectors gathered around to hear Jesus. And Jesus welcomes them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, watch this, here's, here's the change, here's the, dis, the difference, are disoriented and unsettled when they realize that Jesus welcomes those who do everything against God's ways. And he gives them an open invitation to God's kingdom. And it doesn't seem fair when they have lived their whole lives for God and they're confused by everything Jesus is doing. And Jesus realizes how confused and how hurt the Pharisees and teachers of the law are and how their questioning swirls, questions are swirling around in their minds and hearts. So Jesus is moved with compassion for them. And he begins a series of parables to help the Pharisees and teachers of the law see that it's only reasonable for God to find what is lost. In fact, that's what everybody would do, themselves included. If they were, have lost something, they would do whatever was necessary to find what was lost. He helps them see that they are already in God's kingdom. They're safe and secure in God's kingdom. And they can be a part of the rescue mission if they want to. And that the party of God's kingdom is open to them as well. And then Jesus ends the whole thing, which you'll see in a moment, with a cliffhanger. All right, when you start right, you have a much better chance of ending right. Now let's walk through these parables quickly, quickly, quickly. The first parable he gives is the lost sheep. Now I want you to read this, or I'm gonna read it to you, with the tenderness and compassion that he must have set it in. And watch the, how he wants to influence the Pharisees, how he wants to open their hearts, he wants to open their minds to just how wide the grace and goodness of God is and how they are part of the party if they want to be. Here's what he says. He says, suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? He's looking at the Pharisees and teaching, he's talking to them. He's saying, guys, imagine that you're a farmer and you have you're a shepherd and you have 100 sheep and one of them wanders off and you don't know where that one sheep is. Wouldn't you go look for it? One? Wouldn't you go find it? And the Pharisees and teachers of law are going, sure, that makes sense. Yeah, if I was in you know, and responsible for a hundred sheep and one of them walked away, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd go find it. I'd go look for it. Now notice this. It's one sheep out of a hundred. You don't have to be a math, math, you know, expert to know that that one out of a hundred is one percent. The shepherd pays so careful attention that he can tell when only one percent of the sheep are missing. He's saying, wouldn't a shepherd care about that one percent? Sure they would. And when he finds it, verse 5 says, and when he finds it, he, he, he's thrilled and he places that one sheep, 1% of all the sheep, he places that one sheep on his shoulders and he carries it back to the other 99 who are waiting. Notice the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. And when he arrives home, guys, wouldn't he call together his friends and neighbors and say to them, hey, celebrate with me. I've been looking for that lost sheep all day and I finally found the sheep. Let's celebrate. 
Wouldn't they do that? And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law at this time, are nodding their head. They're going, sure, that makes sense. He's inviting the Pharisees and teachers to celebrate, to join the party. Joy should mark the lives of those who find what is lost. And he says, in the same way, in the same way, guys, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. Guys, look around. Do you see all these sinners? Do you see all these people far from God? I'm telling you, all of heaven rejoices if just one would come home. You guys, he's reasoning with them. You guys just said that if one sheep left, you would go find that one sheep. Well, then all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes home rather than the 99. He's talking about them. The 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. To the Pharisees and teachers of the law, basically saying, you guys are righteous. No, you don't have everything right. No, you've got some things wrong. You've got some things really wrong. But overall, you've given your life to follow God. You're in the favor of God. I've got to welcome these people because they are lost. They need help finding home. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law are standing around going, that makes sense. And then he goes to the next parable, the lost coin. Or, let's just let's move to another one, guys. Or, uh, what woman, if she, if she owed, owned 10 silver coins and loses one of them, wouldn't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Now, watch this. We started out with one out of 100, now we've gone from one out of 10. Before it was 1%, you would stop everything to go find 1%. Well, if you would go and find 1%, I'll bet you would really go and find 10%. That's significant. Now, if you've lost 10% of what's really important to you, wouldn't you stop everything and go and find that 10%? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, celebrate with me. Because I have found my lost coin. Again, he is delicately inviting the religious elite to be part of the celebration, which should mark the lives of every single person who finds what is lost. They're all shaking their heads going, sure, yeah. Yeah, if I had 10 silver coins, I lost 10%. I I certainly, I would sweep the house. I'd upturn the furniture. I'd do whatever I got to do. Okay. Well, in the same way, verse 10, I tell you, Joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes his heart and life. In other words, guys, this is, this is why I do what I do. Jesus is talking. You guys are like the 99 sheep. The secure, the secure, excuse me, you're like the 99 sheep. You're like the nine secure coins. You are safe, but not everyone is. So we've got to go after the one and get them. And when we do, there is an occasion to celebrate. And I don't want any of you to miss it. And at this point, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are nodding in agreement. Makes sense. It's clear. It's not difficult to understand the point Jesus is making. When something of value is missing, you should look for it. You pause everything else you are doing until you find what is lost. I don't think one Pharisee or teacher disagreed with what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus turns from animals and coins 
to people. And he launches into the most famous short story ever written, The Lost Son. Now, I'm not going to go through the details of this story because I have on many other occasions and it's all good and it's all out there for free if you want to hear it. The details are not the focus of today's message, but I am going to walk through the highlights of this because I want to show you some interesting points and tie all of this together. Jesus has talked about a sheep. Jesus has talked about a coin. And now he talks about a son. And Jesus said a certain man had two sons. Now pause. We've gone from 100 sheep to 10 coins to two sons. Jesus is leading them down a path to where it is an airtight inclusion. He asked them at the very beginning, let me ask you, would you go look for one sheep? Yeah. Would you go look for one coin? Yeah. So you're telling me you would look for one out of 100 sheep, 1%. You would look for one out of 10 coins, 10%. Well, then what about one out of two sons? 50%. And if you'll go do whatever you got to do to find a sheep, and you'll go do whatever you got to do to find a coin, then how much more will your heavenly father do whatever he's got to do to find people who were lost? The younger son said to his father, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. And the father divided the estate between the two sons. Now, this is no easy task, folks. In this day and age, the father had to liquidate much of his estate. He had to sell some things. He had to get rid of some things. He had to collect some money that he's been saving. And it took a few days to get this money together to give it to his son. And probably during this time, the father's attempting to reason with his son. And son, you don't have to leave. I mean, you can stay here. I know you want to go out. But, you know, can we work something out? Can we work a compromise out? I mean, there's no reason for you to leave home. You can still stay here. I'll, I'll work something out with a little bit more freedom for you. No, 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 no. He didn't. He didn't want to do anything his father wanted him to do. He wanted to leave home. So soon afterward, not the same day, but soon after when the father got the stuff together, the money together, he gave it to his son and the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. This is about as salacious and scandalous as Jesus can paint it. He leaves home, Jesus says. He, he goes to a land, quote, far away. That's a Jewish way of saying far away from everything he's known before. Far away from his home, far away from his father, far away from his values, far away from his morals, far away from his raising. He goes far away from everything he's ever known before. Far away from righteousness, far away from his dad. And when he gets far away, he uses up his resources and a severe food shortage arises in the country and he begins to be in need. He hires himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him in the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. This young man falls about as low as anybody could fall. He is at the bottom. He is wasted. He is busted. He is broken. He has nothing. He is so low, pig food seems appetizing. That's where this guy is. 
And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food and I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. Pause. Stop. The Pharisees and teachers of the law who are listening to this have already heard the story of the lost sheep and they agree with Jesus. They hear the story of the lost coin and they agree with Jesus. And now they're hearing the story of the lost son and they agree with Jesus. They're tracking. The guy is busted. He comes to his senses. He returns home. To them, that's a sense of repentance. He's getting up and he's coming home. Good move on this guy's part. And they probably wonder when he gets home, How would his father respond? While he is still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. Jesus inserts compassion into the story. He doesn't say anything about compassion for the sheep. He doesn't say anything about compassion for the coin, but he inserts the concept of compassion when it comes to people. He's moved with compassion. His father runs to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said the speech that he had prepared, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fatted calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is so important. If I could reach in and kind of just press pause on your mind right now. I don't want you thinking about anything else. I want you to focus in on this part because this is the part that began to flip everything around for me. This is so important. For a long time, I was under the impression that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were shocked at this turn of events in the story. In fact, I thought that when the son came home and the father just lavished him with goodness, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. No way, no how. God is not going to give this young man a robe and a ring and sandals and kill the fatted calf for him. That's not who God is. That's not how God operates. God is a God of law. God is a God of punishment. God is a God, you know, of of all the things that should come to somebody who sins. And you're making it sound like that God the Father just lavishes this young man with all this good stuff. How in the world can you let him off the hook? That's what I've preached for a long time. I don't think that way anymore. Here's here's what I had not considered. And to me, makes this story even more powerful. The Pharisees and teachers of the law understood God as merciful. They were experts in the Old Testament. They knew the ins and outs of the Old Testament better than we do. And it is a mistake to say that God was not compassionate in the Old Testament. He was. He was. We didn't understand everything about God. Jesus came and revealed everything that we need to know about God. But God was compassionate and merciful in the Old Testament. And they knew that. In fact, let me just give you just a little hint of that, okay? David. They knew David's writings. They memorized the Psalms. They knew everything that there was to know about David, King David, King of Israel. And how does David portray God? Psalm 23. The Lord is my what? Shepherd. Not the Lord is my wrathful 
you know, God on a throne who strikes me down with lightning. No, no, no. God, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does he do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The God of the Old Testament was not a mean, vicious God. Yes, there's all kinds of things that, that, that are hard and are rough, but also God is a God of mercy. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm 51. What does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Don't take your spirit away from me. Cleanse me, wash me, make me new. And God did. How about this in Nehemiah 9? Even when they're talking about the Israelites in, 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 in the wilderness after they left Egypt, even when they had cast an image of a calf for themselves saying, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. They made a golden calf for themselves and holding you in great contempt, God, you, what? In your great mercy, didn't abandon them in the wilderness. The Pharisees knew that God was a God of mercy when someone repents. And the boy got up, came home, repented to his father, and the father lavished him with goodness. That was not that shocking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Psalm 28, David said that when he asked for mercy, God listened to my request for mercy. He gave me mercy. The Pharisees knew that God saved Daniel in the lion's den when he cried out to God. God spared him all night in the lion's den. What about Abraham? Whenever God said, you got to go up on you know, the mountain and offer up your son, and it was a test, and he goes up and he gets ready to offer his son, what happens? God stops him out of mercy and supplies a ram instead. Compassion, mercy. What about Moses? Moses my people have been praying for years. Go to Egypt and deliver them. And what does God do? Miraculously provides water for them. Miraculously splits the Red Sea. Miraculously gives them manna. Miraculously does all kinds of things. He loved his people. What about Joseph? God raises up Joseph, saves him out of the pit, saves him out of prison, saves him out of, in the palace, uses Joseph to save his people from the famine in Egypt. Mercy, mercy, mercy. God, gracious, uh, grace and, and compassion and love. The Pharisees understood all of that. They knew all the heroes of the Old Testament. They understood God's mercy. They understood God's grace. And what about the biggest one I put up there, Jonah? What the story of, what, what's the story of Jonah? You know the story of Jonah? God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites because they were far from God. They were doing everything wrong. And God says, Jonah, go and preach to the Ninevites because if you don't preach to them and they don't repent, judgment's going to come. And what does Jonah do? I don't want to go to Nineveh. Listen, why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Because he knew God was merciful. And if he goes to Nineveh and he preaches, guess what the people will do? They will repent, and guess what God will do? God will show compassion and stay judgment. That's the God of the Old Testament. The Pharisees and teachers of the law understood God to be merciful and graceful. He always had been merciful and graceful. Listen, this is so, to me, I might be the only one who really just loves this, but I'm, I'm, I just love this. So when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son coming home and the father throwing a party for him, it didn't shock the Pharisees and teachers of the law. It reminded the Pharisees and teachers of the law that God is merciful. What is going on in Luke 15 is that the Pharisees and teachers of the law are feeling the same thing Jonah felt. Disappointment that even these outcasts 
can come in after we've given our whole life to him. It didn't seem fair. And it is why, why, why Jesus continues with the final and I think most important part of the story. Now his older son was in the field. This is where we good Christians enter the story. Jesus told the front of the story, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son to get to the heart of the story, the main meal, the older son out in the field. These religious leaders who were watching Jesus teach and noticing all the sinners coming up and listening to Jesus, they are the older sons in the field, just like many of you are, just like me many times. Here's what happens to the older son. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. The Pharisees and teachers of the law gathered around to, to, to listen to, to Jesus preach. And guess who was there? Sinners and tax collectors. And they were having a party. And when the Pharisees and teachers of the law arrived, they heard the music and dancing. Not literally, but figuratively. They saw the sinners and tax collectors being welcomed. And it ticked them off. It bothered them. My goodness, they've given their whole life to God. They've memorized the Old Testament. They've paid their tithe. They've, they've prayed throughout the days. They've, they've fasted on certain days. They've kept the law to the best of their ability. They've done all these things for all these years. And these people get in at the last minute and it bothers them. So what does the older son do? He calls one of the servants and asks, what's, what's going on? I hear all this music and dancing. The servant replies, your brother has arrived. The sinner He's arrived and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious. It's not fair. It's like Jonah. This is not fair. And he didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. Oh, my goodness. You remember when the sheep was lost? What did the shepherd do? He went to find the sheep. When the coin was lost, what did the woman do who lost the coin? She went and searched for the coin. Notice the older son in the field, what does the father do? He goes and gets his son. It almost makes you wonder, who's the really lost one of the two sons? And see, that's the issue right here. The entire reason the stories were told, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost young man leaving home. Jesus said all of it to uncover the hurt and disappointment and frustrations of the older brothers standing around. Luke 15 is about the older brother at the end of that chapter. Everything else is leading to that and we got some older brothers in this room. We got some older brothers watching. Can, can I just tell you how many times I've been an older brother? Jealous that somebody else got in after, after all these years and all the sermons I've preached, and after all the 32 years of faithful marriage and 27 years of pastoring and tithing and giving, and then somebody else just slips in and 
gets a party thrown in their honor. Can I just say that sometimes that hurts? It's embarrassing to admit that. It's shameful to say that. But we all have a temptation to be the older brother in the field, jealous that the younger son is being celebrated. Can I just tell you that older brothers go to church consistently? Older brothers join a volunteer team. Older brothers study their Bible. Older brothers automate their giving. Older brothers say no to temptations. Older brothers sacrifice. Older brothers work hard. Older brothers love God. And older brothers get disappointed because they by now ought to be rewarded for all the things they've done right, payday, someday, and they don't get what they think they deserve. And they watch somebody else get what they think they don't deserve. And it ticks them off. Then his father said, he answered, look, I've served you all these years and I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yeah, you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this younger son of yours returned, gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. See that anger, that seething, that disappointment? He doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. Who does he believe deserves the fatted calf? Him. Who does he deserve? Who does he think deserves the party? Him. Who does he think deserves all the goodness? Him. Not this sinner. Not this one who didn't do anything for you. And his father ends by saying, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. Can I put that in our language today? Son, life. Christian. American Christian. You who've gone to church for so many years. You who've paid your tithe. You who volunteer for all different things. You who know the Bible backwards and forwards. You older brother, life is not all about you. Yes, life includes you, but sometimes life is about others before you, and sometimes others must take priority over you, and sometimes they're going to get what you think you deserve, and in the meantime, rejoice for the one who is blessed when it seems like you're not, especially for the one who doesn't deserve the blessing. Three big thoughts, and we're done. Number one, the spirit of the older brother is alive in us when we can't rejoice when somebody else gets what we believe we deserve. When someone gets the job that we were qualified for, the older brother is well alive. When, when, when someone loses the weight and they get the compliment, the older brother is alive. When someone gets married and we're still single, when someone gets the promotion that we work for, when someone wastes a lot of their life and yet everything seems to work out for them in the end, when, when we've worked so hard on our marriage and it still cracks apart. The spirit of the older brother is alive in us when we can't rejoice over someone else's good fortune because we want them not to get what we deserve. First thought. Second thought. 
It seems to me that the older brother is the one who's really lost here. The sheep wasn't lost. I mean, sheep are, you know, sheep do what sheep do. Sheep just wandered away. The sheep's out eating in the field. They don't even know it's lost. Sheep are dumb. Sheep will drown in the rain. You know, they don't know. They're just doing sheep. They're just doing sheep stuff. The coin, the coin's not really lost, right? You don't drop a quarter and then the quarter goes, I'm getting out of here real quick. No, a quarter just rolls and finds a crack somewhere and falls in it and you can't find it. You lost it. The quarter didn't really get lost. It's lost, but it's only lost from your perspective. It didn't really get lost. And in some ways, even though I know the story says that the younger son was lost and is found, absolutely true, I'm just saying, but from another perspective, it's almost like the younger son wasn't really that lost because the younger son left on his own. He knew where he was the whole time. When he got tired of being out there, he decided to come home and he did. So he kind of controlled his own journey. He really wasn't in some ways that lost. But you kind of look at the older son and you go, no, that guy was lost. He didn't even know where he was. He didn't even understand the love of his father. He had no idea what was going on. And then the third point, and we're done. The story just ends like I read it right there. See, let me read that part again. Then the father says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and found and it ends. And if you like a good story, you want to say, well, what happened? Like, what, what did the older brother do? Did he go in? Did he not go in? Did he say anything back to his father? What happened? And we, we don't know what the older brother does. Jesus ends the story to create drama and to shift the next move to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Basically, I don't know. What are you going to do? Are you going to come into the party? Or are you going to sit out in the field and seethe? Are you going to come and celebrate those you don't think deserve what they have? Are you going to come in and enjoy it? Or are you going to stay bitter and angry? And that's the way I leave you today. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you don't get what you want and somebody else does? What are you going to do when the prayer request you've prayed for doesn't seem to happen? Somebody else prays once and it's like, boom, they get it. You're like, what? What do you do when you tithe and you give and you serve and you still have car trouble and somebody else that never seems to tithe, never seems to get, gets a new car? Will you celebrate with them? Or will you stay in the field and be jealous and disappointed? The move is yours. It's in your court what you do with it. Let's pray. Father, embarrassingly so, I have been the older brother many times. I have found myself jealous when somebody else seems to get what I think I work for. When I think I've been so faithful, when I've gone to church and given and served and read and studied and preached and and then somebody else who just seems to get into the last minute seems to just get so much more. Oh, the spirit of the older brother is alive and well. God, I pray you teach us here at Forest Park to celebrate. Celebrate those who were lost and come home and get a party thrown in their honor. 
Celebrate when someone else's marriage is healed. Celebrate when somebody else gets the job. Celebrate when somebody else's business is a success. Celebrate when somebody else's prayer is answered. Learn to celebrate even though we think we deserve it and they don't. God, teach us to celebrate. Teach us to go to the party. Teach us how to have humility and love and grace in our hearts for all people. And God, help us to never, ever, ever remain in the field when the music is playing. God, help us never, ever remain in the field when people are dancing. But let us go toward the music. Let us go toward the food. Let us throw our arms around the sinners who are coming home. Throw our arms around those who are lost and who are found. God, may this place be a place of hope, a lighthouse to say, come home. We will celebrate with you. Teach us to be the way you want us to be, compassionate, graceful, and loving. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hope you have an incredibly wonderful afternoon. I'm gonna make my way to the New Here area. If you're new or have a question, I'd love to get a chance to meet you and I'll see you there in just a few minutes. Have a good day.